Good morning, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this time that we've set apart to come to your word. We ask that this time would be set apart as holy for you to do your work in our lives. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to be a part of that process. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I especially had my hair permed for today. Uh, well, <laughs> jokes aside, um, you can put your sunglasses on if the glare is too much for you. I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit of a, a story. Back in 2013, when Gail had been diagnosed with cancer, we went through six months of chemotherapy uh, treatment. And then in early 2014, she was declared to be in full remission. And it was a little bit strange because I didn't feel as excited and relieved um, as I thought I would. It was a little bit like the experience you might have when you've been involved in a car accident. You, you deal with the other person in the accident, you sort out the chaos, you deal with the police. It's only when you get home that you feel just completely washed out and wrecked. Anyway, I went off on a, a focus retreat with my, my focus group and uh, when I came back, I was having a chat to Gail and I said, you know, Gail, I'm, I'm just not in a good place. I realized that from, you know, from the retreat. And she said, well, what's, what's wrong? Um, I think she already probably knew what was wrong, <laughs> um, but she was just being kind and gentle to me. Um, so I said, no, I, I, I think um, life is very stressful at the moment and I think I'm coping with stress and I think I need to deal with that. And she said, you know, you know what, Ian, um, at the moment, I don't see life being that stressful. I, I don't really know if, if your life is that stressful at the moment. Maybe there's some other issue that you need to be dealing with. Um, and so we chatted about it a bit more. And then she said, perhaps it's a good idea for you to go and have some counseling with Ian Wilshire at the counseling center. And so, of course, as, as time went on, um, I took a sabbatical from Harvest and I went to Ian for counseling and it brought about a big change in my life because what I realized was that um, the, the pressure of Gail going through cancer had exposed some fissures and cracks and issues in my life that God wanted me to deal with. But I couldn't see that. It was only Gail who was able to help me see that. And so we're going to come back to that story a little bit later but what I'm talking about today you may have gathered from where we are in Ephesians is about marriage I'm going to be talking about marriage and it's such an important subject and we might ask the question today is this for single people and I would say absolutely it is for single people as well because you're not going to hit the target if you don't know what you're aiming for so today is primarily about God's blueprint for marriage and if we can understand God's blueprint for marriage, then it's going to affect you as obviously as married people, but also as single people. It'll affect the way that you date. It'll affect when you date. It'll affect who you date. It has so many implications for you as a single person, because I can assure you that you might feel lonely and a little bit incomplete as a single person, but you will be far more miserable in a dysfunctional marriage. So we're going to talk about marriage today. I'm going to begin by reading the, the, the passage from Ephesians. It begins chapter 5, verse 22. 
Let's have a look at it. It begins in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Isn't that good news, wives? You don't, you don't have to submit to, to the wives of other uh, husbands of other women. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Just to put this passage in its greater context, Paul is exhorting the Ephesians how to live as children of light, how to be pleasing to God, how to make the most of every opportunity and understanding the Lord's will. And we've said over the last few times that I've preached that we are, we are in the end times, that there's going to be more and more temptation to be deceived and to fall away in a sense from the love of God and the love of other people. And the way that we counter that is by living intentional lives. And the best way that we can live an intentional, productive life is by making sure that our relationships are working properly. And that's why in the last sermon we talked about the power of relationships, which is the fact that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That helps us to counter the selfishness that erodes and corrodes marriages, relationships of any kind. So that's broadly where we are. But what I'd like to do today is I'd like to talk about the purpose of marriage. And you may find that this, this sermon will ring some bells with you, and that's because we did a whole preaching um, series on this at the beginning of last year. But I'm going to repeat some of this stuff because it is just so important and we could do with a refresher. So today we're going to ask ourselves, what is the primary purpose of marriage? And then we're going to have a look at some implications and applications of that primary purpose. Now, it's very important when we come to use something uh, to understand the purpose for which it was designed. So we need to keep in mind the designer's purpose. Otherwise, when we use that thing, we're going to use it incorrectly and it's just going to destroy it. I, I think a good example of this is what, one of my favorite vehicles, you can Google it if you'd like, um, is called an AC Cobra. It's, it's essentially a, a, a racing car although it's, it's been designed so that you can use it on the roads. Um, it's got a, a massive four and a half liter V8 engine, sounds beautiful. Um, there's one or two around Harari, I've, I've heard them from time to time. Um, but that car 
the purpose of that car is essentially to race on paved roads. So if you take it cross country, you are going to destroy the car and you'll probably hurt yourself in the process. And it's exactly the same with marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? Is the purpose of marriage sex? Is the purpose of marriage passion? Is it to provide you with a good cook and a housekeeper or somebody to maintain the cars and do DIY around the house? What, what is the purpose of marriage? And what I would like to contend from today's passage is that the primary purpose of marriage is friendship. And now this probably comes as some surprise to you because it's very sort of counterculture. In, in some ways it's counterintuitive. It's even counter popular Christian culture. Because we need to face up to the fact that society is teaching us over and over again and teaching your children, teaching your teenagers through books and movies and miniseries that marriage is about romance and passion. That's the message that's being sent across. And even pulp Christian fiction writers are perpetuating that myth. So most people believe, <laughs> the dogs are running backwards and forwards, not a problem. Most people believe that romance and passion are the main course of marriage. And that friendship is sort of like an optional extra, like a side salad perhaps. It's nice if you can get it, but it's not essential. So marriage is about romance and passion garnished with a little sprig of friendship. This is not true. And what I'd like to do is to present you with a definition of the friendship that we are aiming for in marriage. This definition is excellent. Um, it comes from Tim Keller and it is grounded very, very firmly in the text that we read today. Here it is. This is the purpose of marriage. It's friendship. And friendship is defined as deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon. Purpose of marriage is friendship. And friendship is deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down this definition so that you can see where it comes from in the text and, uh, and what it means. So first of all, deep oneness. The Bible uses over and over again this metaphor of the human body as a picture of Christ's relationship with us. It says that you and I are like members of the same body. And that means that there is deep oneness between you and Christ. And in the same way, today's passage says that your spouse is so close to you that you are like parts of the same body. This is what's going to happen in marriage. And you can see that in verses 28 to 30. I'm not going to read them now, but go and have a look. It's all there. It's saying there that if you harm your wife, husbands, you're hurting yourself. It's saying that if you neglect your wife, you might as well mistreat yourself. And of course, it works the other way too. And then in verse 31, it's almost like Paul brings us to a head. He says, from, he, he quotes from Genesis. He says that a man and a wife become one flesh. This doesn't mean that they literally become one flesh. Because the Hebrew word here refers to an entity, a unit. 
So, for example, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted a prophecy from the Old Testament which says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's the literal translation. It means on all people. It means on a unit or a group of mankind. So, when Adam saw Eve, what did he say? He said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Because until then, Adam was lonely. He was incomplete. But Eve completed him. And this, this was the deep longing that he realized was going to be met in Eve. So that's why he didn't say as the first words, wow, she's sexy. He said, no, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He was trying to put into words what can't really be expressed in words. She's other than me, but she's also a part of me. And when God asked Adam to name all the different animals, all the time he was looking for completion. He was looking for some sort of companionship because he had this ache inside of him. But it was missing and he couldn't find it in the animals. But when he saw Eve, he was like, ah, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Here is the person that I want to experience this deep oneness with. And so when you get married, you commit to a mutual journey to the same horizon. You make that commitment. You decide that you're going to journey together in the same direction. And when you do that, you experience deep oneness. It's as if two elements come together to create a completely new compound. Hydrogen and oxygen are different elements, but they combine to become water, something completely different to the sum of the parts. They become one. And folks, the result of this becoming one flesh was that Adam and Eve could be naked before one another without shame. And folks, this is more than just a physical picture. This is a picture of the fact that Adam and Eve could be completely open and transparent with each other. Adam could be completely known by Eve. And this is, this is key, folks, because if you, for example, if you're dating somebody and you can't, as time goes on, and after, you, you know, with marriage in mind, if you think there's certain things I just can't talk to this person about, there's certain things that they won't accept about me, that means that you won't be able to be naked before them and unashamed. And that is, that is very, it's very important that we should be able to experience that oneness, to be able to love and accept each other just the way we are. And also, another implication of this is that it doesn't make sense to get naked physically until we have made the commitment and we know that we are going to be open and transparent in all other areas of our lives. So, there's a very unique friendship that develops in marriage because of the deep oneness that happens. And it's a friendship that has priority over all other friendships. This is something that often sinks marriages when, when other friendships start to gain priority over the friendship of marriage. The friendship in marriage needs to be the priority friendship. And folks, another thing is that 
this friendship can only find its fullness heterosexually. Why? It's because a man is not complete and a woman is not complete. A man shows a certain aspect of the image of God. A woman shows another aspect of the image of God. There is only completeness when a man and a woman come together, not when two men or two women come together. And this is so important in raising a family because Gail and I need to display the image of God to our children, to Catherine and Matthew. And we only show a complete image of God because we are male and female. Now, deep oneness, we've talked about that. It comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon. That's what it says in the definition. So what is this horizon? Well, remember we noted that Paul compares Christ's relationship with the church to the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. What is the ultimate goal or horizon of Christ's relationship with the church? Let me read it to you. It's there in verse 27. You can look at it. The ultimate horizon or goal, the overarching goal, is to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Can you see there that beautiful picture? The goal of marriage is holiness. When a man and a woman stand in front of the altar, remember that altar symbolizes the throne of God. They're making this covenant before God and then before the congregation, before the community. When they stand before, God's alt, alt, before the altar and God's throne, they are like kids playing dress up for something that will happen once they've grown up. One day, Christ is going to present all of us to himself in front of God's throne, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, and on your marriage day, you are dressing up to create a picture of what you are aiming for. A white dress, clothes without stain and wrinkle, carefully groomed. And as you look at each other, you are gazing at a picture of the horizon. You're looking at what you're aiming for, and so is the whole congregation. We're aiming for holiness. We're aiming for blamelessness, because one day, that's what's going to happen when we stand before the throne of God. What a beautiful picture. What a meaningful picture when we get married. Let's talk about love for a little bit. The Bible uses a number of words for love. One of them is philos, and that's friendship love. And another is eros, which is sexual or romantic love. What's the difference between the two? Well, C.S. Lewis writes that eros is depicted by two people gazing at each other, totally absorbed with one another. Philos is like two people standing side by side, gazing at the same horizon, at the same ultimate goal. And the interesting thing is, folks, that if you have the philos, looking, the love that's looking towards that goal in the horizon, with the deep oneness that comes from marriage, then the eros is going to reach heights it never could have reached without the philos. That's the amazing thing. 
So I'm not saying that there isn't any eros in marriage. Of course there is. It's, it's one of the wonderful components of marriage. But we need to understand what comes first. It's that journey to a horizon of holiness. It's the commitment that we make to love one another. It's the oneness that comes, which then all feeds into the eros and makes it that much more amazing. And I just have to say that it, it's so thrilling and exciting to be on a mission with Gail. Our overarching mission obviously is to help one another become more and more like Christ. But then we're working that out in a specific way. We're, we're working together, ministering here in Harare and in the local church. And it's, it's exciting. It's fun. It's challenging. And my mission in all of this is to bring the male aspect of the image of God to my marriage so that Gail can become everything that God wants Gail to be. Because there are certain things lacking in Gail that I bring to the party. And of course, it works the other way too. She does the same for me. There's a book I read when I was a teenager by Irvin Stone. It's just an epic novel about the life of Michelangelo, the famous sculptor and artist. And he said that when Michelangelo looked at a, at a block of marble, he looked past all the cracks and the stains and the imperfections to see the beautiful sculpture that he wanted to release from that block of marble. And so when you look at your wife or when she looks at you, if there aren't any faults in the marble, then you've been blinded. <laughs> there are faults in one another. But we need to see beyond those. We need to ask God to help us see beyond those to see what God is creating your spouse to become and then to partner God in that work. Work with her, work with God towards bringing that beautiful sculpture out. So we've talked about the horizon. Let's consider the mutual journey. What is this mutual journey? We return to the passage. What does Christ have to do in order to present us holy and blameless before the throne of God, which is a picture of marriage? It's a mutual journey that we are committing to, and it is a mutual journey of love. That's the first thing that Christ did for us. Now, there is just so much that I could say about love. <laughs> there is so much deception in the culture around us about love. But suffice to say, folks, and get this because it's key, very, very key. Love is not a feeling. It is always a commitment expressed in action. Love is always a commitment expressed in action. We get so confused because culture is constantly telling us that love is a feeling. The feelings do follow, but primarily and at the start and all the way through, it is a commitment expressed in action. I can have these amazing feelings for Gail and think that, oh, well, I'll do this or that. And then when I don't do them, I judge myself by my feelings, by my intentions. No, that's not good enough. No, my commitment needs to be expressed as action. And of course, that's exactly what Christ did, isn't it? What does he say here? He says, husbands, love your wives. And then he tells us what that looks like. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, Jesus didn't sit in heaven and feel warm, fuzzy feelings about us. 
No, He expressed His love as a commitment to us in action. It meant that He willingly yielded Himself eventually to a death on the cross in our place. So love is a commitment expressed in action. And this journey, this mutual journey, I'm going to love Gail, she's going to love me, is a journey of love. But it's also a journey of cleansing. And the image that Paul uses here is one of a person bathing and taking care of their own body. <coughs> Big pardon. It's worth reflecting on this. Because Paul has already said that a man and a wife become like members of the same body. And if you look at me, I've got lots of different members. I've got fingers, ears, nose, arms, legs. And I can work on my own body. I can cut my fingernails. I can comb. No, I can't comb my hair. I can brush my teeth. <laughs> um, I can do sit-ups to work on my stomach fat. I can do all sorts of things. And keeping myself in a healthy, clean state requires quite a lot of work and discipline. And also, it requires gentleness on some occasions. I need to be careful. You know, I'm not going to ask Gail when she's angry to floss my teeth because I'm going to come away with bleeding gums. And so just as you clean your own physical body, just as you work on it, you must give your spouse permission to help you become holy, to help you become everything that God wants you to be. And you know, your spouse is going to see things that you can't. Gail could see that my problem, going back to the story that I shared at the beginning, that, that part of my problem was that that time of stress had exposed issues in my life that needed to be dealt with and issues that she had probably known about for a long time. And so in the gentlest, kindness possible way, without nagging, led by the Spirit, she said things like, I don't think it's about your circumstances. I think it's more about what's on the inside. I think perhaps you need to go and speak to Ian Wilshire. And then she left it to see what I would do. And so I couldn't see that, but she could see that. And, you know, it takes humility. It takes trust. It takes being able to be naked before one another to do that, to know that the other person isn't going to reject you. And, you know, what we discovered over time was that I was... I'd probably been struggling since my teenage years with, with an issue of depression. And so that was the first step, in a sense, or, or one of the many steps towards healing and wholeness. Um, the next one was when a couple of years later, the girl said to me, Ian, I really, I'm worried that you're depressed. I think maybe you need to go and see your GP. We've already done the counseling thing, but I think you perhaps need to go and see your GP. And you know, you, you often don't listen to your wife. Um, and then a, a friend of mine, Stephen Marshall, who'd also, um, he's also been through this process of dealing with depression and overcoming it. He said to me, more or less at the same time, Ian, I think you might be depressed. I think you need to go and see your GP. And so this is what it means to, to be working with one another so that we cleanse one another so that we wash one another so that we perfect one another with God's help and move towards that final goal of holiness so where have we been so far <clears throat> we've talking about the purpose of marriage that it's friendship and then we've said that friendship is deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey a journey of love and cleansing to the same horizon 
which is holiness. <clears throat> Let's have a look at some implications and applications now. We're almost there. The first one is that I hope you can see that marriage is about having a common vision. The same overarching vision, which is to grow in the likeness of Christ, but then a common vision in the sense that as in terms of the details, we're on the same page. And folks, that is not going to happen if you are married to a non-believer. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen if you are married to someone even who has a vastly different commitment or vision of life to you. You need to make, make sure that you have that commonality of vision and purpose and mission. That's what you need to make sure. Because if, for example, you're, 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 you're wanting to marry a non-Christian, I have no doubt you would be able to continue with your, your Christian faith in the process of that. Um, but the reality is that you're going to, one of either of you two, because you've got such a vast, vastly different worldview, is going to have to dial back, is going to have to compromise a little bit. Otherwise, there's going to be constant um, tension. That's why it's just so much better. That's why God and the Bible require us to marry a non Christian. So don't be unequally yoked. That's an implication for single people. Uh, just a, a, a brief aside. What happens if you came to faith after you got married? Well, the Bible teaches that that is not grounds for you as the believer to end the marriage. Let me just put that out there. Come and chat to me more about it if you want to. So, married people now. In and out of like. <laughs> We've argued that marriage is a mutual journey of cleansing towards this horizon of holiness, of Christ-likeness. So this implies that there is a lot of work to be done. You know, marriage is not sweet and sentimental. When, when you sit there at a marriage ceremony and there's a little bit of tears in the eyes of the, of the tannies and so on, it's sweet, it's sentimental. But remember, that is a picture of what you're aiming for. There's a hang of a lot of work that needs to be done to get there. It's going to be blood, sweat and tears. And I have no doubt speaking from experience um, and just counseling other people as well, that, that marriage is hard work and it needs to be hard work. There's a lot of bonuses, of course. There's a lot of rewards, but there are also times when it's hard work and times when you definitely fall um, out, of, out of like. We don't, we don't necessarily like what we see in the other person. And I have no doubt that through periods of time when, when I was battling with some of my issues, um, Gail was just like, oh my word, what are, who have I married here? <laughs> you know, um, but we're looking beyond the, the cracks and the flaws to that beautiful masterpiece that God is, is, is bringing out. And so we just need to, to be committed. We need to express our love in commitment and in action. And you know, those feelings of romance that you feel when you're dating. Tim Keller says, and I, I agree with him, that it's mostly due to the excitement of a massive ego kick. You know, this guy who's so good looking, who's so sweet, that, that the other girls really like, he's with me. He loves me. He wants to spend time with me. Or this woman who looks so beautiful that all the other guys are checking out, she's with me and I'm holding her hand. You see what I mean? See what Tim Keller means? It's not really love so much as 
wow, just an amazing boost. So, don't date non-Christians in and out of like. Another one for, for single people, how do we choose? I'm not sure um, what, it was, what, what it's like in your day, uh, young today, young people, but in my day, we had this expression uh, called spade work. So if you went to um, a, a party or a social gathering or something, you looked around and you decided who you were going to do a bit of spade work on. You know, the, the, the hard work of chatting the person up, getting to know them. And primarily what would happen is um, you would be looking for the, the body type or the figure or the, or the face or the personality maybe a little bit secondary <laughs> of the person that you were going to spade and the girls were looking well you know was he is he polite is he charming um is he well groomed you know all of these things but what i have to say is that if you if you went into a room of 20 people you would maybe narrow it down to two or three people on the basis of appearance when in actual fact we shouldn't be judging on appearance alone. I mean, if the purpose of marriage is friendship, then it's a bit of a dangerous thing to judge only on appearance alone. Lastly, beware of completion without com commitment. Beware of completion without commitment. Most people need the completion that can only be found in marriage. In marriage as God designed it. And the Bible teaches that there are a few people who have the gift of singleness, but that's another topic. Most of us need that completion that comes in marriage. And therefore, most people are looking for the completion that can only come from a deep friendship across the sexes. And the problem is that it's very tempting to look for a form of completion without entering the commitment of a marriage covenant. So that can take the form of sex before marriage. It doesn't make sense to have sex before marriage until you have made the commitment, till you've established the covenant before the other person, before God and before the community. Then it is appropriate to have sex and to enjoy the experience that comes from marriage, uh, the, the oneness that comes from marriage, the completion. Because I can assure you that if, if you're having the sex without the covenant you're not going to experience the completion you're still going to be trying to scratch an itch that you can't reach here's another way that people do it sometimes what they do is they enter into a platonic friendship which goes on for years and years without some sort of a commitment that's also a dangerous thing because you're looking for the for the the completion that comes from commitment but you're not actually committing. So, for um, applications and implications for this whole purpose of marriage. Let me just recap and then we can pray. The purpose of marriage is friendship. And friendship is the deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey, a journey of love and, and cleansing, going towards the same horizon, a horizon of holiness. Purpose of marriage is friendship. Friendship is the deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon. Shall we pray?
Father God, I thank you for the many wonderful examples of marriage that we have at Harvest Church. And as we pray together as a body this morning, we ask that you would bless those marriages. We ask that you would be working through the power of your Holy Spirit in spouses so that they are able to submit to one another, that they're able to love one another, that they're able to be on this mutual journey, journey of love and cleansing. And Father, we just look forward to that day when every marriage at harvest is a picture of what will happen when we are presented before you, Father God, before your throne, spotless and without blame or blemish or any such thing. And then, Father, also for our young people, we pray that you would bring to mind these truths and principles um, as they live their lives, as they seek to find a marriage partner. We ask that you would bless each one of them, that you would guide each one of them into marriages that are fruitful and are beneficial for the kingdom, that bring glory to you and that bring much joy to the participants as well. And then, Father God, just lastly, we know that there are many people who are struggling with singleness. Maybe you just haven't found the, the person yet that you feel led to commit to. Or maybe you think that it's probably not going to happen. Or maybe your spouse, that precious person, has now passed on. And Father, I, I know we haven't had time to deal with these issues today. But I just ask that with your mercy and your compassion that you would minister to people in those places as well. And I would also just say before we say amen, that come and chat to us if you need some encouragement and support with regard to those issues. And we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be praying for you. And uh, we hope that you have a great week. Goodbye for now.